Hi, everybody. Welcome to one of the coolest churches I've been into today, only because the swamp cooler is functional, as opposed to last week. I want to thank the Bible Party small group for a great meal, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. If you're wondering what this spot on my shirt is, yeah, I tend to hold babies sometimes, and they tend to drool. Oh, man. Wow. Okay. Hi. I'm back from vacation, and uh, because I was on vacation, and I wanted it to be a vacation, I decided that I wasn't going to prepare a message, because it's really hard to prepare a message and be on vacation at the same time. Uh, but I was really, really fortunate that, uh, that I decided to, to, to make a Blomberg sandwich. Um, so um, this week we're going to hear from Fran. Next week we're going to hear from me. And then after that we'll be hearing from Craig. And so I will become the middle of a Blomberg sandwich. And uh, we were talking something with white bread and Euro meat, I think, right? Or something like that there. Irish soda bread. Irish soda bread in Euro meat with, with tzatziki sauce. Or bologna. She would say bologna. Yeah, that's what, that's what happens when you're from where she's from. All right. You could have been on Jersey Shore, right? <laughs> okay. Anyway, so I'd like to uh, just, if you don't know who Fran is, uh, Fran has you know, been on staff for quite some time now and becoming a scum for longer than that. Uh, Fran is an adjunct at Denver Seminary. She's currently working on her Ph.D. through a university in Prague in the Czech Republic. Uh, she has been on a staff uh, at churches before. Uh, no, most notably as missions uh, director, missions pastor, uh, sending people all over the world. Um, she obviously always has to answer for being married to a guy like Craig Blomberg. And this is um, what I like to say, that there are very few women I know who could keep up with a Craig Blomberg and often put him in his place. Uh, Bible translator that he is. Uh, so, um, I thought, this is the kind of person we need on staff. May I please introduce to you your staff person and mine, Fran Blomberg. Who, who was it was telling me that if I wrap the cord around, then I look like a real rocker? Last week when I was having trouble with the mic, just doing the benediction that was recommended to me. Anyhow, um, as Mike mentioned, <clears throat> for, for quite a while I was a missions director at another church, so I did get to travel the world a lot. And this little book became my second Bible. It's the World Vision Security Manual. And it's sort of the, the guide for all humanitarian aid organizations and NGOs of what to do in amazingly troublesome situations like kidnapping, hostage situations, stuff like that. What I want to ask you tonight out of this book 
And if you have actually been in combat and had this experience, do not answer, because you and I will both enjoy hearing what some other people come up with who have not had this experience. But I am seriously interested in hearing from you what you would do if a grenade, a live grenade, rolled to your foot. What would your natural reaction be? Kick it, throw it, cry, run, jump on it. What a nice sacrificial martyr we have there. You got one shot. Thank you. <clears throat> what, you what the World Vision Security Manual recommends you do is probably not too intuitive. It is kick it far away from you. Lay yourself flat on the ground. What do you think, facing or away from the grenade? Away from the grenade. Cross your legs so that you're slightly protecting the major arteries in your legs. What do you think you do with your hands? Okay, okay you're laying on your belly. I hear a lot of people say, put them on your head. Not really what's recommended. What's recommended is you keep your elbows in because you want to protect those vital organs. Your skull is a slight protection for your head already, but you want to make sure, it's hard to hold this and do the mic, um, you want to make sure your lungs and your heart are protected from the shrapnel going. Now you don't want to try running or you don't want to pick it up and lob it back because after the pin is pulled, you have four to eight seconds and you have no idea how long it's been in the air already when it hits you, hits your feet. So. Kick it away, drop, cross your legs, arms at your side to protect your vital organs, protect your ears, and then the other interesting thing is open your mouth. Not to let out a scream. <laughs> Why do you think you have to open your mouth? It's the pressure, yeah, the pressure of the detonation could likely burst your eardrums, so opening your mouth, you know, like you're on the airplane and you want to yawn just to pop your ears a bit, it could help, you know, dissipate the pressure some. Now, most of this is not what you would naturally think to do. I, I mean, me, my personality, I would freeze. I would stand there and I'd be dead meat. I'd be upright, everything would hit me. I'd be a goner. And an awful lot of times, what we should do in life is not necessarily the first thing we think to do. If we do what comes naturally, if we do what comes spontaneously, yeah, like what I feel like doing right now. Or if we try to follow a strict set of rules. Or if we just think about ourselves. I mean, like, it, it's a very noble idea. Throw yourself on it. But you won't survive. I mean, that, that's, that's an option. But it's not necessarily the one that's going to save you. Whereas kicking it off into away from a crowd could potentially save you and the others around you. So the point um, I want to make tonight is that what comes naturally is not necessarily the best thing for us to do, particularly in our Christian lives. Once we take into account that through our salvation in Christ, we have a second nature, a new identity, 
we realize we have an ability to live a virtuous life. That's what our verses are going to be about tonight, living a good and virtuous life. When Mike first asked me to preach on these verses, and you can go ahead and put up the Philippians 8 and 9, um, my first thought was, thanks, Mike, I get the granny verses. How appropriate, you know, for the old lady. Um, I'll be the Girl Scout, and we'll talk about all things sweet and Pollyanna. But seriously, there is stuff in here that is not only absolutely essential for ourselves, beneficial for those we love around us, and made possible through the power of the Spirit in us. A little bit of background. We are in the book of Philippians, if you're kind of new with us tonight. Philippians, the city of Philippi, a church in modern, it's in modern Greece, um, founded by Paul and about 12 years old, not unlike scum. Paul himself is the founder at this point, is probably in Rome, about 750 miles or two weeks walk away from the church. He's either in prison or under house arrest. If he is under house arrest, that's not too luxurious. They didn't have ankle monitors back then. You were literally chained to a soldier day and night. Not a lot of privacy, still a cut above actually being in prison. So in the situation where Paul really didn't know whether he was going to be condemned to die for his faith or whether he might be released, he had a lot to think about, but what was on his mind was his care and concern for his churches, especially this church in Philippi. Um, some of the key verses and concepts we've looked at so far, he says to them, and they're not like, you know, nobody's threatening their life. But they're having the same kind of miseries that we sometimes do in our Christian life. It's a new religion in the area, this Christianity thing, only about you know, 20, 30 years old. And they're getting mocked. They're getting um, set aside. Families are arguing with them. Um, jobs are being you know, given to others around, the, you know, past them. Their circumstances weren't a lot unlike ours, what we sometimes have happened because of trying to live out a Christian life. And these Philippian believers, for the most part, okay, so none of them has been a Christian for more than about 12 years. And they come, for the most part, not from a Jewish background where they could kind of slide into Christianity. Um, their city and their culture at first, you know, hundreds of centuries earlier, been conquered by the Greeks, and now it was kind of owned by the Romans. So they are Greco-Romans. And if you remember anything back to, you know, high school literature, when you had to read all that mythology about the gods and everything, they had, they were like pagans. They had no, no Bible background, no Christian background. They had nothing really that, I mean, not a lot of experience in building this Christian faith. Maybe not unlike a lot of us here at SCUM. And Paul's really concerned not that they learn a lot of facts, but that they really do understand the legacy that they're getting into now with this faith, and that they learn how to use it, how to use it in situations in life. I mean, you and I struggle, and they did too. You don't know when to kind of just go along with the culture. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I can, I can do that. Or when you have to flat out reject something. Or when you just have to give it a little twist, you know, to bring it into conformity with the character of God and what you know to be true as Christians. So Paul knew they were struggling with all this. He writes a letter, and now we're getting toward the end of it. And uh, I identified with this because um, I am one of those mothers. 
You know, when the kids are just about to walk out the door, when the conversation is just about ended, you're about to hang up the phone, or for Paul, when he's just about at the end of the parchment, he starts throwing all these last-minute admonitions and exhortations at them. Uh, a couple weeks ago when Mike was preaching, it was to two of the women leaders in the church. Would you please stop your bickering, stop your fighting, you're causing divisions. Would you please get along? Last week, Evan was preaching, and it was, um, don't be anxious. You know, keep calm, pray in all situations, the peace of God will rule in your hearts. And this week, holy cow, he just lays it on thick. It's like rapid-fire machine gun. So let's look at the two verses now. And believe it or not, there really is a lot for us to discover from them. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So you see that? I mean, can't you just picture your mom? You know, you're trying to get out of the house. You're trying to leave. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm like that. So that's Paul, too. Paul, the Boy Scout. Let's look first at verse 8. If we can go back to that one. Really, all of this revolves around that word excellent toward the end. Um, give you a little bit of a, a history and a Greek lesson here. New Testament was written in Greek. That word, arete, is often translated as virtuous. Now that's a word we just don't hear a lot about these days. When we hear the word virtuous, we all often think corny, cheesy. But for Paul and his audience, this Greek slash Roman audience, it made all the sense in the world. It was a really, really common expression. Remember Aristotle? Anybody ever heard of Aristotle? Now, he died about 300 years before Christ was born. But um, he was, like, big into writing about ethics and virtue. So here was an idea that the Philippian audience, they didn't have a Jewish background, they didn't have much Christian background, but they had their Greco-Roman background, and man, they could latch on to this and some of the other words that Paul used that were really, really common vocabulary for them. So this was good of him. This was really good that he would, you know, instead of just throwing out foreign ideas at him, he really made this bridge. He took what was good in their culture, but he's going to give it a little tweak now for Christianity because the Greek gods that they were used to worshiping, again, if you remember your stories, the Greek gods, you know, they went out and they got drunk and they slept around. And they, I mean, they were really no better than humans. They had to acquire virtue for themselves. And you acquired virtue by, you know, mustering up all your energy and doing the best you can. And it was all human effort. Well, Paul knows that's not the way it is for Christians. Um, we have Christ as the absolutely perfect example of virtue, period. And our God doesn't have to strive for virtue. Our God is the virtue. And we don't have to muster up the best we can as human beings because we are enabled by God's grace and the Holy Spirit to possess and to develop and build up these virtues. So he's kind of taken a, an idea familiar to them, but he's not 100% letting the culture dictate how these terms are used. He's making sure that he reconfigures it to be consistent with Christ. 
and God and the character of God and the scriptures itself. And he throws out, I mean, rapid fire. There's eight things here. And then he has four different ways that they're supposed to absorb these things. And really, I don't want to emphasize each one of these as if those are the only eight things we have to do in life. Paul's trying to be really comprehensive here. But there is, there's value in looking at each one of them a little bit. So let's do that. So when he says whatever, again, he's being very comprehensive. It doesn't have to come strict from the Bible in order to be true, for instance. I mean, if I went to the Bible looking for how to survive a grenade attack, I would be a sorry soul because it doesn't mention grenades in the Bible. Not all truth comes out of the Bible, but truth must be consistent, especially in character and relationships with what we find in the Bible. So all truth, the pithy says, is God's truth. And so look for it and appreciate it and acknowledge it when you find it. Um, let me take, um, you know, it's a small enough crowd tonight. We have time for just a little bit more interaction. Give me some synonyms for noble. What is noble? Honorable. Chivalrous. I like that. Gallant. Loyal. Royal. Couldn't hear which one you said. Yeah. Selfless. Okay. This is just what we have to do. We have to think about these things. Um, just, that's not too hard. What, what else would be a synonym for just? Fair. Right. Honest. Equitable. Ooh, big word. Now, some of the translations will say right, whatever is right. And I just want to make sure we realize that... Um, Paul's not being argumentative here like um, too often we are today where I'm right, you're wrong, there's the line, don't cross it, we're going to fight. Um, when he says right, he does mean righteous or just, fair, equitable. Sort of like a plumb line, you know, if it's going straight down, it's right. Or when those little tools you use, I don't even know, the ruler with the little level, thank you. <laughs> Theology, I speak. <laughs> construction I don't but yes you know so he's not he's not trying to start a fight here well whatever is right go ahead I challenge you um, whatever is pure what else would pure be untainted. clean untainted I missed the first one out like snow okay good <laughs> pure um, faultless sacred holy think about these things um, lovely what's lovely your wife Raylene listen to this tonight okay everybody's wife everybody's husband sure okay what else what else is lovely everybody's child enjoyable agreeable aesthetically pleasing it's okay to have lovely we're such a cynical bunch here at SCUM. It's okay to have lovely things in your home, on your body. It's okay. What about admirable? How else would you describe admirable? I'm sorry? Respectable. Respectable. Worthy of respect. Dignified. Dignified. 
commendable, recommendable. Maybe it would think, help so if we think of the anti-virtues, if you thought of the opposite of these things. Whatever is deceitful, whatever is ignoble, whatever is unjust, whatever is vulgar or dirty, whatever is broken, whatever is contemptible or self-centered. Sometimes we get the idea of what we should be thinking about by thinking of the opposite. But really, when it comes down to it, what is the media put in front of us most of the time? The virtues or the anti-virtues? The anti-virtues, that's what sells. You know, we have this sort of instinctual um, voyeuristic desire to see suffering and evil and dirt and filth and vengeance. Um, and yet Paul comes right out and says what is excellent, virtuous, morally upright, morally outstanding, of high character for the common good, if it's praiseworthy, think on these things. Why would he tell us this? And why in the 21st century, when we look at this and think, cheesy, why would we put effort out into thinking about virtuous things? Well, I have a few ideas. And number one is, we were created for that, folks. I mean, we don't want to admit it. We all want to be cool. We all want to look independent and tough. But deep down, we yearn for these things. And you know why? Because God, when he created us, put his image in us, the imago Dei. And what is the image of God? Is it the virtues or the anti-virtues? The desire for beauty and purity and just, you know, justice and truth and nobility, those are hardwired into us by our creator. We can do an amazing job in denying that and squashing it and stifling it. And sometimes the circumstances of life beat it right out of us. But we desire these things in our core. Not cheesy, but we desire them. I want to say, too, I want to make this point, too, that um, you might be one of those who grew up in a sort of a Thomas Kincaid-type house, um, learning that classical music was good and everything else was evil and of the devil. And I want to I want to say right now, I'm sorry, you were mistaught that way, that whether it's music or art forms or, you know, the subcultural preferences you have in your dress, in your vocabulary, um, there is truth and beauty and justice. There is something to love and admire in all of the genres that sort of the litmus test is what is this piece of art or this piece of music's orientation toward God and toward others? And what does it do to your human spirit? Is it leading you more toward beauty and truth? Is it uplifting your spirit? Is it teaching you kindness? Is it making you a better person for the sake of others around you? Because if it is, then it meets the qualities of virtue. It doesn't have to be Thomas Kincaid or classical music to do that. And we have artists and we have musicians here at SCUM who I know sometimes get spoken of poorly by others outside of SCUM because of the genres that they practice and sing and draw and paint. 
But there is beauty in the genres if the orientation is toward God and toward the care of others and respect for self. And just the, the third reason for these virtues is um, it's also been said sometimes that you know, if you live in this kind of Pollyanna world where everything is good and beautiful and bright and that's all you ever think of is what's happy, um, then you're just denying the reality of the suffering of the world. And I want to say I don't think that's true either because there's a big difference between being concerned about something and being consumed by something. And I don't care if your issue is animal rights or genetically modified food or the Palestinian crisis or sex trafficking of children. If you're concerned about it, you're going to be led to do something about it. You'll be an activist. But if you're consumed by it, you'll be paralyzed. You'll be useless. Or you may be one of those person, people who rants so much that nobody can tolerate listening to you. So to be a person of hope connected with these virtues rather than just being a person who likes to live in the doom and the gloom and the despair and the anti-virtues is more beneficial for you and for others and glorifying to God. But I still think, I still have this fear that me saying this just sounds artificial. Sure, Fran, you know, you're happily married. Um, might I say, I use this expression sometimes, I'm a kept woman because Craig takes good care of me. So um, kids are doing great, house is air conditioned, life's going good for me. You know, easy for me to talk about what's true and lovely and just. And so to give more authenticity to this, um, I want to invite somebody else up to share a bit with you tonight. And Adam's agreed to come up and give you a take with his great skill in poetry on virtue versus hopelessness. Thanks, Ryan. No pressure, right? Um, apparently, I'm the street cred. <laughs> Um, in, uh, in Philippians 4 that we're looking at, um, Paul is urging us to dedicate our focus on things that are true, noble, lovely, pure. And my favorite example of that is hope. Um, this is a poem I wrote uh, on thinking about that instead of cynical pessimism and just fearing the worst. I uh, wrote it during April a few years back uh, when, I don't know if you guys remember this, when the dirty snow and the sludge just never really seemed to go away. It's like spring, nope, still winter. Spring, no and just sort of crushing your hope every time you, you start to believe that. Uh, and this is about whether it made sense to hope again, uh, given all of that sludge, which I know we can probably identify with in some other areas of life. Uh, it's called gullible. The skies are gray with the broken promise of spring, spoken straight-faced by nature when it said, I swear, winter's over this time. And you bought it. Bought into the spring fever that made your very blood click its heels as it rushed along sidewalks that converged at the cheeks of one embarrassed to have been fooled again. How could you be so gullible, you ask yourself. But the answer is clear. You try to take comfort in the old platitudes. It's Denver. Nature's supposed to be bipolar here. Other people believed it, too, from the weathermen to the birds that began remodeling their nests before the last tree's mortgage payment rolled in. Even the trees themselves were deceived, and they wear their gullibility on every green-flecked sleeve, frayed fabric from winter coats they would sure would not be needed so late. At their feet, rhododendrons, dandelions, flower and weed alike, except the mob mentality, wearing their dreams like pressed uniforms, knowing late frost can kill uniformly, though this town's parks and gardens just don't seem to care. 
They shoot up from the dirt, putting on the colors of we are tired of waiting, and spiral upward toward light and warmth, and the occasional 12-hour sheet of ice, blighting some, killing others, and reminding the survivors that those who dare to shed their timidity will be struck down first, and the forecast is no security to you. And yet, they keep pushing forward. Maybe the vanguard is unaware of the risk, or maybe the green in the stems doesn't have as much to do with envy as it does with naivete, and trees don't make the mistakes of children reaching curious for the strange red of stove coils, but maybe, maybe they're just less cynical than you and I. We champions of stasis, holding our stoicism like rusted trophies of our victory over the burden of believing that winter may someday end. And those frail green buds are their whisper to the world. I alone have not given up hope. I alone have not given up hope. You know, there's an, we talked about reading these as the anti-verses. Um, if we skip a slide or two ahead, we'll also see how important it is to believe in people who believe these things. What if we read this as whoever? Whoever is true, whoever is noble, whoever is just, whoever is pure, whoever is lovely, whoever is admirable, if anyone is excellent, are worthy of praise, hang out with that person. Don't let the circumstances of life or the company you keep keep you so far, not just in the gutter, but in despair, that you cannot rise above circumstances in order to think on these virtuous things. And Paul gives us some ways of doing it, too. I think we can go to the, the last slide here. Um, he says, first of all, think about these things. Now, he doesn't mean just a, a passing thought. He doesn't mean just a, a, a fuzzy feeling. <gasps> it's so lovely. No, he means deliberate about what is lovely. Evaluate things. Are they pure? Um, be very intentional in your thought. Put great effort into figuring out. Remember, he's talking to these Gentile believers who have to figure out faith from scratch. They don't know how to apply these principles yet. It's not going to happen accidentally. It's not going to happen if you just react to situations. We have to give serious thought and time. Try to articulate, just as I asked you to simply come up with synonyms for some of these virtues. Give thought to what all this means and how it would apply. Um, Paul is, Paul's actually kind of um, ballsy here when he says, if you've seen me do it, you do it. If you've learned it from me, received it from me, heard it from me, seen it in me, do it. He said something like that in chapter 3, too, um, about let me be your example. And it sounds kind of nervy. It sounds like a little bit more than a human being should say. But if you think about the circumstances of Paul's life, I would agree he had every right. I mean, you know, he, was an, he came from a pretty well-to-do family. He was amazingly well-educated for a Jew of his day. He walked comfortably in different cultures, probably spoke several languages. Um, when he was a, you know, a zealous Jew, um, he hobnobbed with governors and kings in order to get permission slips to head up segments of an army to go out and capture Christians. And he gave that all up 
for the sake of Christ. I counted all loss for the sake of knowing Christ, he said. And now he's writing from a prison 750 miles away where he's chained to a Roman soldier, not knowing whether he's going to live or die. There are people back in Philippi jockeying to take his position and his influence. And he says, eh, I don't care as long as the gospel's being preached. There are others coming in with false teaching, messing with his congregation, and he's like a mother bear all over them. In chapter 3, when he was talking about those dogs and mutilators of the flesh, we see the full range and full gamut of Paul's emotions, but he is worth imitating. If we really think about the quality of his character, what made him angry, what made him happy, what he lived for, and what he didn't care about. And there's a lot of other biblical characters the same way. Even when there is failure, even when, I think Evan mentioned this last week, somebody did recently, about David. David, king of Israel at one point, sees a woman, wants her, takes her. She gets pregnant. He kills off the husband after he sends the husband home to make it look like the kid is his. Uh, you know, not, not a story to imitate, please, but... The story of David's repentance and the psalms and the laments and the agony and his very public bringing back his life into allegiance to God and according to God's will. Even that can serve as an example. Scripture is full of examples of people that we can follow if you read it for the stories um, good and bad, but you'll see these people really thirst after God. So Paul's not afraid to say, if you've learned it from me, or received it from me, or heard it from me, or seen it to me, from me, put it into practice. And this word received is, um, it's one of those words that just doesn't quite show up in English, but it's talking about a very formal way of teaching. Anybody here grow up in a church where you did catechism, and you memorize things? Okay, what is the chief end of man? <laughs> no. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to love him forever. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Okay, if you grew up Catholic, Lutheran, any of the other traditions where they had formal catechism, you memorized things. You learned the tradition. You learned your church history. Um, here at SCUM, we do things like theology classes and small group and church-wide Bible studies because I just don't want haphazard teaching where you pick and choose and point your finger at a scripture and say, yeah, that sounds like that'll work today. You might be like Judas and go out and hang yourself if you pick the wrong verse. Or you might pick the one that says, greet one another with a holy kiss and get your, you know, self slapped across the face. You can't be haphazard in your learning. Paul's advocating for some serious thinking and some serious study. And we offer that kind of serious study here at SCUM. And we urge people to take advantage of it. Um, so if you've, Paul says, if you've learned it, if you've received it, if you've heard it, if you've seen it in me, put it into practice. Not just wishful thinking. Practice. Training apprenticeship, discipleship, and these things involve work. Discipleship, discipline, see some similarity in the, in the words there? A disciple of Christ is disciplined, works hard, um, 
If I were to sit down at a blank canvas and try to produce a piece of art for the show in two weeks, I tell you what, it wouldn't happen. I have absolutely no training in art. I have no practice in art. I can't even draw a picture for Pictionary, and there are several here who will attest to that just from last night, when our team got zero points. You just, I just can't sit down and produce a masterpiece. Why would I think I can just wake up in the morning and produce a mature Christian life without training, apprenticeship, following good examples, listening to what I've been told, doing serious study every day? If I ate one salad a week and junk the rest of the week, I, that would not turn into a developed habit of health. So why would I think that showing up at church one and a half to two hours a week and living without the influence of Christians around me the other 166 hours a week would produce a strong Christian character in me? Christian life, if you want the advantages of it, takes work. It's not an overnight production. I'm not going to lose those 20 pounds tonight. I'm not going to become somebody competent to play the keyboard in worship this week. And the, the joy of the Christian life is you have a whole lifetime. You have a whole lifetime to work it out. And a phenomenal promise here at the end. Um, I think we need to go back to get that very end of the verse 9 there where Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's two ways of taking this. The God of peace will be with you, and one of them one of them will kill you in a heartbeat. If you take this idea, the God of peace will be with you, as an if-then, if you shape up, if you live virtuously, if you get your act together, if you mature, God will show up and give you a pat on the back. That'll kill you. That'll kill you with despair because you can't do it. You can't be like those Greeks trying to muster up that virtue, trying to do it on your own. Think of it this way. Let's say you were in an accident and a friend takes you to the ER and you're freaking out, you're hurt, you're crying, and your friend says, it's okay, I will be with you. Okay, your friend isn't saying, if you would get your act together and stop the hist histrionics, Quit your crying. Stop bleeding. When you feel better, I will come and be with you. That's not what your friend is saying. Your friend is assuring you right now, I'll be with you. And that's what God is saying here, too. This is not a promise for the by and by if we get our acts together. This is fact. This is reality that Paul is assuring us of that will help us along in this lifetime process of maturing as Christians. The God of peace will be with you. And God's character is peace, shalom, righteousness, wholeness, integrity. God is bent on reconciliation. Some of the um, paraphrases I like to use for this are, the God without drama will be with you. The God who is bent on your redemption will be with you. The God who has sure direction in the midst of the complexity of this situation will be with you. 
It is an assured promise. I skipped over something, but it's worth mentioning. I want to go back to it, that this whole idea of Paul saying, put it into practice what you've seen and heard in me. Um, you are surrounded by people that you can emulate. Um, I will go out on a limb and say, even your staff, council members, um, leaders in the church, um, we go to the wall for you. We put up with crap for you. We put up with crap from you sometimes. But even in failure, we do something wrong, go ahead and point it out. And watch us, Lord willing, model an apology and a repentance and a correction. And that's what we ask of leaders here. You mess up one night, don't quit the church, don't quit leadership. Show us how, by the grace of God, you recovered from that mistake, from that bad episode. And I really think that we could be models. We should be models. We can be models and examples for each other. If you don't feel like your life is an example to others, then you need to shape up your life. If you are half a step ahead of someone, if you've been married a year, you're ahead of a newlywed. If you've been to a Bible study, you're ahead of some new believers. If you've gone through hell and you've come back again, you have something to share. If your life with God is great right now, you can help people figure out how you got it that way and how you keep it that way. A couple quotes from a couple more of those dead Greeks. Aristotle again. Because remember, he was the one who started all this virtue talk. The perfect form of friendship is between those who resemble each other in virtue. I think one of the best things you can do for your friends, I mean, friends don't let friends drive drunk. Friends don't let friends live like jerks. Friends don't let friends grovel in mediocrity. Friends really try to lift one another up. If you care for people, live as an example for them and hold them to be an example for others. Another guy, Cicero, who died a little bit before um, Jesus was born, said this, let this be ordained as the first law of friendship. Ask of friends only what is honorable. Do for friends only what is honorable. Whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in Paul, seen in your leaders, seen in Christians you admire, seen in anyone you admire, seen in each other, um, help that build up your Christian life. Um, another story of someone who acted in second nature and not in a natural way, who took to heart the idea that the first thing you think of may not be the best thing to do. Do you remember a story a couple years ago, um, January 15th, I think it was 2010, a plane took off from LaGuardia Airport and about three minutes into the air, it was only at about 3,000 feet, hit a flock of geese. You remember that story? It immediately, the geese got sucked into the engine and both engines went dead. 151 people plus crew on board flying over New York City at 3,000 feet, what are you going to do? Well, the pilot, who had a ridiculously long name, I wrote it down here, his name was Chelsea B. Sullenberger III. He went by Sully, a lot easier to remember. Um, 
Sully had over 30 years of flying experience, military, commercial, he was even a glider pilot. And it was a good thing he was a glider pilot because at this point, that Airbus was gliding. It had no engine. He had less than three minutes before he crashed to make a decision. His first thought was, well, there's an, another airport about a mile down. I can almost see the runways. And he thought, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it a mile. He had no time to read the rule book. He had no time to call a lifeline. It was him making these calls. The second thought was, New Jersey Turnpike's looking pretty good. It's long. It's flat. Make a nice runway. That would have been a very selfish thing to do because he could have landed the plane, but he would have taken out a number of motorists on the way. And he could have said, I'm bigger than them. Sucks to be them today. But he chose not to take the New Jersey Turnpike either. He decided he would land the plane in the Hudson River. To this day, he's still getting criticized for that decision. But he knew what he was doing, not because of his first gut reaction, not because he wasn't nervous, but because of 30-plus years of experience and the ability to quickly put into place what he needed for that situation. <clears throat> so with the plane gliding, he notified traffic, air traffic control he was going to go down in the Hudson. They thought he meant he was going to go straight down. But he put the nose down a little bit, start gliding the plane toward the river, just about at river level, turn the nose up a little bit, slid into the water, nicer than you've ever seen a duck take to the water. Walks through the plane, tells everybody, you know, it's okay to get out the emergency exits, the life rafts are ready, people are, I mean, you've seen the pictures, people are just standing on the wings of the plane like it's, you know, like they're standing on the sidewalk. And all sorts of emergency vehicles and watercraft are there within minutes to rescue them. Few people hospitalized more out of shock than anything else. Not a life lost, all because this guy didn't do what came naturally, did what came from his years and years of experience and calm in the midst of an amazingly difficult situation. Some of the situations where we have to call on that second nature aren't anywhere near that much of an emergency. Um, you could be with your family and one more time someone makes one more remark about your faith and your spontaneous reaction is, but you don't do it. You keep your cool because of the second nature you have been granted in Christ. You know, you go home one night and your roommate's on internet and you're not going to stick around to see it. You're just going to walk away. You're not going to let your mind and your eyes go there. Not because it's not your first nature or not because it is your first nature to walk away. It's your second nature. It's your developed Christian character and your virtue that helps you walk out of there. So just to conclude, same points again. We don't always want to do what comes naturally. We want to do what we've been trained to do because of our deep commitment to Christ, the power of the Spirit that he gives us, and the work, the discipline that we have put in as disciples. It's not cheesy to like and to enjoy and to seek after and to thirst and crave what is just and pure and lovely and admirable and true and noble. This is hardwired into us from the character of God. And we need to support one another in this. We need to be examples to each other. That's just the admonition I would leave you with. Now, <laughs> this is it's a really way to deflate a sermon, but we forgot to announce there's a potluck next week, and that's all I have to say.